Father God, we ask, Lord, that as we open up your word, that you will shape us and mold us into what you want us to be today. Lord, help us to see Jesus, and by seeing him, to come more into the image of Christ. Father, you know how much my heart loves this church, and I pray that uh, that love will be reflected today as we look honestly and openly at the word. Lord, change us into what you want us to become in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that Jesus's ministry was happening in real time today. That's just a fun little imagination. Uh, You know, you, you want a fun little thought. Think about Jesus working in real time today. Further, imagine if he tried to vindicate himself the way so many in our day do. I'm going to do my best news reporter voice. Evening news reports have been tracking the interesting developments of a Nazarene named Jesus, of whom some claim to be the promised son of David, and the bipartisan parties of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who seek every opportunity to oppose him. I feel like that at least deserves a little applause. Okay, thank you. I worked long and hard on that. Maybe you wake up one morning and you find a New York Times headline that reads, Jesus sues opponents for slander and defamation. Maybe you watch a Fox News report and on the screen scrolls the words, King Jesus demolishes the conservative pharisaical party in public debate. Then you have a CNN commentator who loves to show these clips of Jesus angrily pointing his finger at the Sagittards and shouting out names like liberal heretics and leftist Jews. Now, we know that Jesus never handled his opponents in that way. But it is intriguing to consider how different Jesus' approach was uh, from those who typically wield power in our own day. Jesus, due to his own nature as the Son of God, faced unfair and undue opposition more than any other person in human history. I mean, this is the perfect Son of God who has never sinned, God in flesh. Like, just imagine how unworthy every accusation that came his way was. Even more than that, he was the rightful heir to David's throne. And as the Davidic king, he had every right to lay a public smackdown on his enemies. Now, to do so at the time would not have been that much uh, contrary to typical Jews' understanding of the Messiah. In fact, maybe even more people would have followed him as king had he had a few more of these public smackdowns. Had he sued his political enemies, had he pointed his finger just a little bit more often, because in their eyes, the Davidic king would come and he would wield political and military power power unlike any other sovereign in human history. Therefore, enemies beware. However, contrary to these expectations of the Davidic king, Matthew's gospel adds a shocking twist in the story of Jesus Jesus's exaltation to global dominion. Rather than establishing his kingdom through military might, political power, economic strategy, rather than telling the Israelites why they should vote for him because of how he's going to reshape the way that Israel looks, Jesus took a much, much, much different approach. An approach that surprised many. For example, when we read that the Pharisees brought unjust accusations against the Messiah, we would half expect him to fight back, right? I mean, this is the Davidic king. 
This is the rightful heir to the throne. Who are they to speak to the king in such an accusatory way? If you're like Peter at all, you're like, break out the shorts and start chopping off ears, Peter. I mean, this is, who are they to bring these kinds of accusations against the king? As it is, the one who bore the rights of the Vedic king took the surprising role of a servant. He does not vindicate himself. He does not try to defend himself. He doesn't get into public disputes in order to save his own reputation. Matthew chapter 12 verses 1 through 21 shows us how Jesus as the king was also the servant through whose suffering, not his self-vindication, through his suffering, God will establish justice among the nations. My friends, if we are to see Jesus as he really is in Matthew's gospel, we must understand him as both king and servant. Now to show this, we will consider first Jesus' rights as the promised king and shepherd. We want to see how does Jesus as the king actually have a right to do what he's doing. And then next we're going to consider the bizarre twist of Jesus, who actually has the upper hand over these Pharisees, retreats withdraws from them and consider why in the world would this king who has every right to do what he is doing, who is in within legal bounds to do what he's doing. Why would he, who could win this debate, who could win this fight, who could publicly embarrass the Pharisees, why does he turn and walk away? And then finally, we're going to consider what all this has to do with us as modern believers. In the first section, verses 1 through 8, Matthew asserts that Jesus' rights as the one who is greater than the temple and the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath vindicate what he does. He has a right to do what he does. Verses 1 and 2 begin. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, if you know the law of Moses, the law of Moses obviously prohibited people from working on the Sabbath. But the question remained, even after Moses gave the law, what constitutes as work? What is work? And so laws were expanded and added and the people were taught what they could and could not do on the Sabbath, they call it the halakha laws, right? It was the, the walk. This was the, the way that they were to obey the rules, obey the law. Now, to be fair, the heart and the intention of these additional rules were to try to keep people from inadvertently breaking God's law. But there was still a difference. You had the law of God, and then you had these halakha laws that serve as like a fence. Think of them as a fence around the law. And so they, they made these different rules. So questions like, how far is too far to walk on the Sabbath before it's considered work? So they came up with a rule. There was a Sabbath day's journey. There was only so far that you could go and no further before you would take one more step and it would become work and you would break the Sabbath. They even had debates over the proper way to carry a load and what is a load and what is a burden. So you can't carry your bed like this on the Sabbath, but you can carry something like this on the Sabbath. So they came up with all these different rules to safeguard. Lawyers and rabbis debated as to what it meant to glean and to reap. 
Now, just to be absolutely clear, what the disciples were doing is they were walking through the fields, they were taking their hands, and as they would pass over a, a, a grain head, they would grab it and sift it out and pop it in, in their mouth. I mean, they're just, they're snacking, right? They're not working, they're not reaping, they're not she- having sheaves and, and, and breaking them off and then taking them to the marketplace to sell. No, they're not doing any of that. They're just walking through the field, taking grain, he- grain heads and popping them in their mouth which was completely legal according to the written law of God. Deuteronomy 23 through 25. So they hadn't broken God's law, but what they did break was the pharisaical list of all these additional rules that banned such plucking. Now this background I think is important if you're to understand what the Pharisees meant when they said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful. They hadn't broken God's law but they had broken the halakha. Now, for me, if there's ever a time I want Jesus to have a legal debate, it's now. Jesus, you can win this. I totally wish I could have gone back in time and been Jesus' legal counsel, because as his legal counsel, I would have told him, you can humiliate the crud out of them here. They are presenting halakha laws as if it is the word of God. And yet you can take them to Deuteronomy 23, 25 and show that you have not broken any rules and that they are falsely accusing the innocent. This is the time to have a legal debate. Jesus, you have the upper hand. Jesus, you have the firmer ground. Embarrass them. Bring it out. And yet Jesus doesn't engage in legal disputes like that. He doesn't draw out and show and embarrass them in showing how they don't truly understand the Torah of God, how they, how they haven't truly understood Deuteronomy 23, 25. Instead, he points to his own identity and his own rights as the son of man. He doesn't engage in these legal spats, but instead he points to himself. He says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, according to Jesus, there are two scriptural examples of people who have violated the Sabbath and yet are guiltless. He points first to David. David, the future king, who was on the lamb from a tyrant. While on the run, David and his men became hungry and they were desperate for bread. They came to the priests of Nob and they asked for the bread of the presence, which only Levites were supposed to eat. They ate it. It was illegal. And yet David was guiltless. How? Well, in part, it was because of the very mercy of the priest who willingly gave him the bread. But in fair shake, it was also the fact that he was the Davidic anointed king. This is the anointed king who has come to ask for this bread. He by right, by right and roll can ask for this bread, eat it and not be guilty of breaking the law. He points to another example with the priest. Priests legally profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I mean, if you want to point to someone who's doing work on the Sabbath, just go to the temple. They're slaughtering sheep, they're throwing blood on the altar, they're raising up incense, they're doing all these things that can be considered work on the Sabbath. And yet, even in their work, they are not guiltless. They profane the Sabbath and yet are not guilty of breaking the law of God. How? 
because by role and right, they are priests. It's not so much about what they do as much as it is about who they are by their role and right. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? After he points to David as the anointed king, after he points to the priest as the anointed priest who can legally profane the Sabbath, Jesus tells them, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. It's an astounding claim, and it must have left the Pharisees scratching their heads. What could possibly be greater than the temple? There's nothing more important than the temple in a Pharisee's eyes. Who would have the rights that would exceed beyond David's or the liturgical priest. If priests could work in the temple, if David could eat the bread, then who is this man to say that he has a right to walk in a grain field, pluck the grain heads and eat it on the Sabbath? Well, sadly, the Pharisees were blinded by their own legalistic ritualism They were not able to see who Jesus was. They were counting down the halakha laws, everything that Jesus said. Now we caught him here. He's he's broken number 27 when it concerns the reaping. Oh, we've caught him here. He's healing a man in the synagogue, as we'll see later. And in reality, they had missed the heart of what God's law is all about, which is mercy and not sacrifice. The quote comes from Hosea 6 when Jesus uh, brings it to them. And it says... uh, it says that they have missed completely the, the role of the law in bringing about mercy and not just about bringing people under strict submission to the law. It's about bringing mercy in which God in Hosea six, forgive me for my space brain this a little bit uh, in Hosea six, God is lamenting that his people have chosen the infrastructure of the temple of the sacrifices of the religious ritualism. And they have completely neglected on their relationship with God. As a result, they have been faithless toward God. They have laid in wait against the innocent. So you can just see these Pharisees doing what's happening in Hosea six, where these people are behind hiding behind a rock, peeking out every once in a while, just to find out who they can stone for breaking the law, just to find out who they can accuse for transgressing the law of God. Now, as I was reading this, I had to think about it. What were the Pharisees doing in the grain field in the first place? I mean, it feels like they're just following Jesus, trying to catch him, right? Trying to look for a reason to accuse him. And if so, if that's true, then they are guilty of letting their ritualism trump over God's desire for mercy. By accusing Jesus' disciples of being unlawful, the Pharisees take part in the same ritualistic sin as God's people in Hosea 6. They elevate their ritualistic sacrifice. They elevate the infrastructure. They elevate the temple. They elevate all these things that they do, and they miss out on the mercy of God. So they act faithlessly. They lay in wait for the innocent. Their plotting to destroy Jesus later in this text confirms that they have missed the heart of what God wants them to do. Now, in their legalistic ritualism, they have failed to see who Jesus really is. They have failed to see that Jesus is the innocent son of man who by nature is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, they know not to whom they speak. They might not accuse David of eating the bread of presence. They might not accuse a priest of profaning the Sabbath, but they have accused the Lord of the Sabbath himself for breaking the Sabbath. 
He had rights. He was greater than David, greater than the priest, greater than the temple, and even over the Sabbath itself. And as such, they have accused the one who had royal rights to do what he did. Now, true to Jesus' quote from Hosea 6, the Pharisees go from there and they set a trap. Because that's the right thing to do, right? I mean, we all know that it's, it's great to entrap sinners, right? And entrap guilty people. So go set a trap and see what he's going to do. That sounds, that sounds exactly what these religious elites should be doing at this point in time. It says this, and he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Once again, we come back to their Sabbath ritualism. In their synagogue stood a man with a withered hand. So, so you've got this man. We don't know how his hand was withered. Withered could mean wounded. It could, be, it could mean a birth defect. Whatever it is, they see this broken person who probably had no means of living, who probably was a beggar in various forms, who was dependent on people's mercy. And they take this broken person and they make him a battlefield. They make him a point of argument. We see the same thing happening in our days. Broken people shoot someone, someone dies, and suddenly it becomes a political argument, a political battlefield, rather than having mercy and mourning and being broken at the fallenness of humanity. Well, the Pharisees were doing the exact same thing. Broken man who needed mercy, broken man who needed love, broken man who needed someone to come to his aid, and yet he's nothing more than let's see what Jesus does so we have a point to accuse him on. That's what religious ritualism does in our lives. Well, Jesus, he enters the synagogue and he sees the man with a withered hand. He sees the man with a withered, with a withered hand. The Pharisees lob the question before he even gets a chance to do anything. They just simply say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, healing true to form is a form of work, right? I mean, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking, well, you have to do something to heal. And if you have to do something, it must be work. And if we can get you to say that it's, it's uh, lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath, you've essentially contradicted scripture and just said that it's okay to work on the Sabbath completely have lost their minds, their mercy, and cannot yet see who Jesus is. Undeterred, though, Jesus answers back in the most ingenious of way. He says, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus uses analogy to again show these Pharisees their lack of love. A good shepherd would not leave one of his sheep languishing in a pit, even if it was, even if it was a Sabbath. And no one would accuse a shepherd from reaching down and pulling out a sheep out of the pit of breaking the Sabbath. That is what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd protects and loves and cares for and rescues his sheep. And so if a good shepherd would save his sheep even on the Sabbath. And then how much more valuable is a man than a sheep that who also needs to be rescued and saved? So the, the argument is simple. Premise number one, 
Saving a fallen sheep on the Sabbath is good. Yes, they agree with that. Premise number two, a man is more valuable than a sheep. Yes, we'd agree with that again. Conclusion, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. More explicitly, it is lawful, it is good to heal this man. Jesus confirmed his own words by commanding the man to stretch out his hand and then he healed it. He made it whole, he made it healthy again. Jesus showing that he's not just here to talk. He's not just here to, to, to speak in, in parables and, and to uh, con- challenge people verbally. He's here to actually act and save real sheep. And in his, in his analogy, the shepherd, we can't help but think that this is the shepherd of Israel. This is the one who has come. He has sheep who have fallen in a pit. Sabbath day or not, it is his role, his right as the shepherd of Israel to reach down and rescue his sheep. They've accused the shepherd of doing what he must do, of doing what he should do, of doing what he has a right to do. Jesus, shepherd of Israel, this man, a wounded sheep, Jesus has every right to heal this man and to make him whole. He's doing exactly what he should be doing by nature of his role and right. Now, the irony of these two accounts, and and I was tempted, just just to be completely transparent, I was tempted to stop the sermon there. But I realized that the story doesn't end there because there's a surprising twist here in the end. But just taking these two accounts, it's it's interesting that Jesus' accusers, not Jesus, who are guilty. They are the ones who are lobbying accusations at the innocent. They're the ones in all their strict ritualism have wrongly accused the innocent Messiah of God. It is they who have extended their role, not the son of God. The son of God is doing exactly what he should do. He's performing his role. And yet these arrogant people, insolent opponents are extending their role by accusing God in flesh. This is the danger of religious ritualism. The problem of ritualism is that it attempts to rob God of his right to be God. Ritualism holds our expectations, what we think about God, what we think we know about God, up over God. And it places our expectations of God up over his right to be sovereign. Here the Pharisees' legalism blinded them from seeing who Jesus is. Jesus didn't fit the box. He simply did not stay in the fence of their rules. He kept walking over it. He didn't respect their additional halakha laws. And he wasn't tame. He ate with the wrong sorts of people. He hung out with untouchables. His friends were tax collectors. He didn't submit to their interpretation of the law. He was not a tame Messiah and therefore not easily on their leash. And so they simply could not accept him as king. I think it's just worth asking. Most of us have been in church all of our lives or most of our lives. And we too have this tendency towards ritualism, which is just this idea of we are religious people. We conform to our religion rather than conforming to a God And so it's worth asking how we might respond when God breaks our rules. What happens when God reserves his right to be God and does something we don't like? 
What happens when in all of his sovereignty, God sends us to the mission fields to which we don't want to go? What if God in all of his creatorship and his kingship and in his absolute right, sovereign right at that commands us to love people that we don't want to love? What happens when God takes up his role and right as king of the church and makes demands of the way we speak, the way we think, the way we act? What if our sovereign king actually serves as our king and makes demands on the way we love our neighbors, serve others? You see, religious ritualism seeks a tame God whose wine never burst your wineskins. But to truly have a relationship with Jesus means that your wineskins, your expectations, your boxes that we try to fit God into get burst all the time. God breaks out of those. The fences we build don't hold God in. I just, as I was reading that, thinking how often I don't like what God does, or I don't like what he makes demands of of me, and yet how much he has a sovereign right to make those demands. And it's not him who is out of place. It's not him who has overextended his role. By nature of creator, he has every right to make every demand possible that he wants. It's according to his will. Therefore, the problem's not him. The problem is my own heart that rebelliously doesn't want to come under his reign. It is me, not he, who has overextended the boundaries, who has transgressed the lines of what's right. So we must constantly repent of our religious ritualism, or else we'll become just like these Pharisees, calling God in flesh a sinner, telling the Lord of Sabbath that he's broken the Sabbath, telling the one who has all sovereignty, who actually owns the day, and the, the one for whom the day was made and telling him that he has broken it. That just is laughable. And yet all the times we tell all the time, at least I do. I don't know if you do. We tend to drift into this temptation of telling the creator what he has a right to do with our life. Asking him what rights he has over our words, our voice box, our brains. And yet he's the one who sovereignly spoken into existence. So to submit to Christ as king means to come under his rightful reign, to stop putting him in the boundaries of sovereignty, but to allow our sovereignty to be put into the bounds of his kingship, to allow ourselves to be fenced in by his reign, not to try to fence him in. Now we get to a surprising twist. Again, the the narrative doesn't end there. I think Matthew intends for us to keep reading through verses 14 and 21. Verse 14 says this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. A fight was brewing. In the one corner, I mean, you can just see this boxing match. Everybody's doing pay-per-view. We're all watching it. This is going to be Ultimate Fighting Championship 101. Let's just get ready. In one corner, we have the merciless, self-righteous, insolent Pharisees. And we all know that they're just going to get pummeled by this big champion, the Davidic king, in the other corner. I mean, you see him, you see his sovereign muscles, you've seen him still the seas by a word, 
A storm came, he said, peace be still, and ocean went calm and smooth. Demons are quaking underneath him. Not even leprosy stands a chance. And we're all like, all right, time for ultimate showdown. Let's see the smackdown. And then the king leaves the ring and forfeits the fight. What? Why in the world would he do that? It would not, it wouldn't take anything. I mean, give them leprosy, Jesus, or something, you know, like you, you got the power, you have the upper hand, you have the rights, you're the king. These people are, are like taking away your right as king. They're, 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 they're oppressing you. You would not be oppressing them. You'd be defending yourself. You'd be vindicating them. And how much more successful would it be if you publicly humiliated all of them? Like just give them all withered hands. Just to show that you do have a right to be who you say you are. And yet, he retreats. What a strange time to retreat. I'm telling you, as a, as a punk kid, I did not walk away from fights easily. Especially ones that I knew I could win. Okay, If I knew I could wrestle the neighborhood kid down to the dirt and called for a submission. I, I mean, we did. I mean, we were country boys in southeastern Oklahoma. And so this was a daily, a daily fun thing that we did. We'd go down to the creek and wrestle. And um, now I didn't have any problems walking away from the fight when Roger came because Roger was much bigger and I knew um, that he would win. But I, I didn't walk away from tussles that I knew I could win. I had something to prove. I had some muscles to flex. I had some respect to win. I needed to let them know this was my creek. Jesus is absolutely the opposite of that. Absolutely opposite of that. And in, in fact, as he withdraws, as he retreats, Matthew says that Jesus is actually fulfilling scripture. Jesus is actually fulfilling God's plan. He quotes Isaiah 42 Verses one through four, and he says this, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Isaiah 42, just to kind of set the context, belongs in the section of text that focuses on the suffering servant, right? Most of us know Isaiah 53. We know that. We can quote that. Well, that Isaiah 53 belongs into the section of text that focuses on the suffering servant, the one through whose suffering God plans to save the world. You hear texts like, he opened not his mouth, but he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. So you hear texts like that in this section. And so as Matthew's looking at Jesus' retreat, quoting Isaiah, he quotes Isaiah 42, showing, yes, Jesus is the Davidic king. Yes, Jesus will accomplish victory over his enemies. Yes, Jesus real, will rule on David's throne forever and ever. Yes, every knee will bow to Jesus. 
He doesn't deny any of that. And yet it doesn't happen in the way we would expect. It doesn't come through political power. It doesn't come through massive armies of warriors. It doesn't come through through, uh, social influence or economic strategies. It comes paradoxically when the son of man becomes a slave of humanity. He would not be drawn into legal debates or fistfights with the Pharisees. He had nothing to prove. He had no rights to demand upon. And said his way was to silently suffer and walk the road of the cross. He had every right to sit where Pilate sat. He had every right to sit like Caesar. He had every right to Herod's palace. He had every right to the innermost part of the temple. He had every right for these insolent opponents to be groveling at his feet. And yet, in God's sovereign plan, the king must walk through the valley of suffering and death. Must. He was resolved. Not resolved to win fights, resolved to die. That's why he came. He came to lose his life, not save his life. He came to be beaten, not to beat them. And it would be through this weird paradoxical that he, the paradox that he would, he would be defeated. He would be broken. He would be smashed and crushed and wounded and whipped and broken and bleeding. And yet Jesus would win the victory through his own defeat. He didn't cry foul. When people maligned him, he didn't get in people's faces. Now, yeah, Jesus confronted people, absolutely. You see that in other passages of Matthew where he confronts the Pharisees and proclaims woes upon them. But Jesus is not some brass knuckled fighter here, he's a gentle savior. He is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and opens not his mouth. And the best news of all is that it is through his silent suffering that we get the loud, majestic good news that we have been saved from sin. He brings justice to victory. He brings hope to the nations, but not by conquering in any physical way that we understand that word, but by dying and conquering Satan by his own death on the cross. He withdrew. He accepted his role as servant and king. And he continued to work. His destiny were not these street fights. His destiny was the cross. One day Jesus would be in a garden. And a, a cohort of soldiers would come. Jesus having every right. To call down the armies of heaven. Said so himself. And yet willingly allows himself to be bound. Can you imagine if you could break those ropes, if you can level an entire cohort of soldiers by simply saying, I am he, and they all fall down flat. If you have so often had the power and the ability over nature, over demons, over angels, over all these things, who of us would not have snapped those ropes like a twig? And gone to work. But Jesus. Humbles himself. 
I mean, the only analogy that I can think of is when I let my kids beat me in a wrestling match. I have a three-year-old, I have a five-year-old daughter, and a seven-year-old son. And he's sitting here today, and so I publicly want to confess that I could own him in a wrestling match. (laughs) Now, to be sure, he gets a few good shots in that are sincere shots once in a while. But the only reason my three little children beat me is because I let them win. For the fun of the game, for the love of my children, for them to have a little fun time with dad. But here we have Jesus who could clearly win, who could clearly defeat, break, kill, slay. And he allows himself to be bound. He carries the cross. He's nailed to it. Again, they're mocking him as king and they have no idea how true that statement is. He could come down from the cross. He could save himself. They taunt him to do so. Come down from the cross. Save yourself. Now, who of us who, who if we had the ability and the right and the authority would not say, fine by me. You don't appreciate what I'm trying to do here. Fine. Let's see what happens when the son of man comes down from the cross. How many of us would not just bow our back up at that? And yet he died. He stayed on the cross. He purchased forgiveness. And then he rose again three days later, showing that every bit of what he said about himself was true. He waited for validation from God. He waited for justification from God. It it verified who he was. He did not have to defend himself, did not have to fight for himself. He could die trusting that God would keep his promise and raise him from the dead. Victory of justice has come. Hope to the nations has come because Jesus has suffered. Now, that's all great, right? We, 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 we understand the text, I think, now. We've got these two accounts that show Jesus' rights And then we've got this text that shows him as a suffering servant. That's great. We have a suffering servant and a king for a savior. Great. What does it have to do with us? Is this text going to make any kind of demands of us? I mean, it's predominantly telling us about Jesus. But what does it have to do with us as followers of Jesus? As much as we might relish in Jesus taking the Pharisees to task, as much as we might appreciate him verbally pummeling his enemies, it's good news that he didn't treat his enemies that way. You want to know why? Because we far too often forget that we were once enemies. If Jesus handled his enemies roughly like that, if Jesus defeated and embarrassed and pummeled his enemies, then all of us deserve to be pummeled and defeated. We were the insolent opponents. We were the ones who were alienated from God, hostile to God, following the course of this world, following his enemies, satisfying our own sinful cravings. And yet it's solely by his mercy that God made dead sinners raised to life. Romans 3 is even more colorful. It says that altogether we have turned aside and we have become worthless. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, We as sinful humanity simply do not respect God. We don't reverence him the way we should. So my friends, it's a good thing Jesus doesn't break broken reeds. Because we're the broken reeds he doesn't break. It's a good thing he doesn't humble in a public, massive, 
destructive way, these Pharisees, because we're the insolent opponents who sit against God and his work in the, in the world. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Not when we finally agreed with him. Not when we finally said, you're right, you're king. That's not when he chose to express friendship and love. It was while we were still sinners. So it's good news Jesus doesn't handle his enemies that way because he's handled us with gentleness and grace as well. It should also stir us up to follow him. I couldn't help but think of Philippians 2, which points to Jesus' servant-hearted nature and how Philippians 2 calls Christians to do the same. He says this in Philippians 2. Paul says this in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay, well, there's the application that he wants us to have. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking up the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, contrary to, what, to the way many have interpreted this text, this has nothing to do with Jesus emptying himself of being God. He was still very much God. He still had every divine nature he ever had. He still had authority over all creation, over all beings. Instead, he emptied himself of the right of being treated like God. People spat in his face, and at that moment, him emptying himself out, they spat in his face. He had every right to snap a finger and make him disappear, and yet he emptied himself of that right. He created them. He could uncreate them just as easily. He emptied himself. He was silent. He was king by inherent right, but he was servant by choice. I think Jesus's way of living and his model should give us intriguing thoughts about the way we think about our own rights. For better or worse, we're living in days that have us talking about rights, have us talking about our freedoms His rights led him to die like a slave for sinners. This is not a call to some Quaker-like passivity. Nobody's telling you to lay down your rights. But it is a call for active love for broken people. Jesus emptied himself of his rights so that he could serve us on the cross. At a minimum, can we at least use our rights as an opportunity to love and serve others? More than ever, we have people talking about the freedom of speech, but do we freely speak the life-giving gospel so that those around us can have eternal life? In our country, we have the gracious right to bear arms, but in Jesus, we have the right to bear crosses. Do we use our rights to serve others? My friends, as Christians, your rights are not an end of themselves. God has not given you these inalienable rights in him, in life, in your situation, just so that you can use it however you please. God has set you free in Christ so that you and all of your rights as the children of God can use them to love and serve others. That's something that's not being said much in our discussions about rights. 
Yes, we have rights. So did Jesus. But are we emptying ourselves like he did? We have rights. We're royal priests, don't you know? We're the heirs of the kingdom. We get everything when it's all over. And yet, do we consider how we can humble ourselves and be servants to people that under normal circumstances we should hate? Do we seek to love our enemies? Do we extend hands to broken reeds? Or do we trounce on the broken reeds? Are our hearts moved to compassion when we see crowds and rioters and all these people who want to take away your rights? Are our hearts moved to compassion? And are we willing to even die for them so that they might know Jesus? I mean, this is where the compartmentalization of being citizens of America, citizens of the kingdom kind of breaks down for a believer because citizen of the kingdom means that you now use your human rights in order to represent Jesus. Even if that means laying down your life, carrying a cross so that others can have eternal life with Jesus. Now, no one in this pulpit will ask you to lay down your rights and to pretend as if you don't have any. But if you're to use your rights rightly, you will use them as a servant of those who are broken. May we, like our Savior, be people who have inherent eternal rights in Jesus, but who use our rights as an opportunity to heal the broken, to love the wounded, to rescue sinners, to pull out fallen sheep from pits, and to love those who may not love us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in all the inadequacies of this time, Father, of all the stumbles and the trip-ups and the uh, miscommunications, Father, that you are sovereign and that your word is clear. God, I pray, Lord, that as we ourselves have been made priest-kings in Jesus, that we will follow our king by becoming suffering servants for others. God, I pray that we take up the right to bear crosses. I pray, Father, that we take up the right to freely speak about our Savior and King and not just fear those who try to take our rights, Father, but actually consider how we can use rights that you have given us Just like Jesus used his right as the Davidic king to die for sinners, may we use our rights to die as well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.